Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to the Mo Show podcast. Uh, tonight, I have a, a special episode with someone who very fortunately agreed to come on my show, really, I think just maybe 10 or 12 hours ago. I would like to introduce to you all Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. I'm going to start with an open-ended question, and that's, what does it mean to be Muslim? Well, the Arab saying holds that الطرق إلى الله بعدد أنفاس الخلائق The roads to God are as numerous as the breaths drawn by humanity. There are many ways up the mountain. There are many varieties of Muslims in this enormously diverse, rather disorganized religion, you could call it. Not organized religion, but somewhat disorganized. And that lack of... Uh, homogeneity has certain very significant benefits in terms of attracting people from a wide variety of perspectives around the same mountain. Uh, we get uh, an increasing inflow of converts at the moment in the Western world and particularly in, in the Western European setting. Our mosque in Cambridge, which is small by many British standards, uh, registered 104 conversions last year, and the numbers are growing. And we struggle mightily to discern some kind of overall pattern. Is there a single profile? And we've not been able to discern one. There's a slight preponderance of women, a preponderance of younger people, evidently united by some kind of spiritual quest, a sense of disillusionment with the felt flatness of modernity. Uh, but there's people from the aristocracy. Uh, we had an Israeli settler who converted to Islam. I was there at the time. Most recently, we had a Lithuanian guy, um, very religiously earnest, but coming from a kind of post-Soviet spiritual vacuum space. Uh, we've had members of the clergy. Uh, so they're all looking up the same mountain, but from extraordinarily different perspectives. Some people are attracted to the philosophical aspects of the religion, others come in through Islamic art and design, others have fallen in love with the Muslim. Uh, some people have traveled in the Muslim world and have been fortunate enough to meet the right kind of people. Uh, there really is no single uh, pattern. So what is it to be a Muslim? Uh, it is to find in this final Abrahamic dispensation a habitation for the soul that provides a refuge from the uproar of secular modernity. That, I think, does unite them. Otherwise, <laughs> it's a rainbow coalition <clears throat> of different people, some of them oddballs, some of them very straight-laced, many of them not actually formally announcing their conversion, um, the so-called submarines, people who uh, don't wish to face the usual stereotypical questions about Islam, but wish to live their faith in a private, personal way. And there is some even quite significant people in the British establishment and parliament and so forth. I know who are devout Muslims, and I've prayed with them, but um, they haven't been outed, as it were. They're still in the closet. So what is, it, what is it to be a Muslim? The difference between a cult and a sect, on the one hand, and a great world religion, is that a great world religion accommodates the full panoply of diverse, crazy, interesting, colorful humanness. And we certainly find that with Islam, uh, an enormous diversity. Um, and that diversity, I think, is set to grow as society becomes more decentered, more individualistic, um, more peculiar. But Islam seems to be handling that because, as I say, we're, we're receiving more and more newcomers every day. Yeah. You mentioned just before we started shooting that you converted in the late 70s. Mm. With the 
internet world that we live in today, would you say the rate of converts have remained the same, increased or decreased in the last 40 odd years? Well, sociologists have looked at this, um, plenty of PhD theses on new Muslims. It's very difficult to pin us down with statistics, but if you look at the most recent fully released UK government statistics where uh, religious affiliation is something that you can declare as your self-identification as well as ethnicity, and you match up the people who self-identify as white British and those who also tick the Muslim box. And that gives you a kind of base statistic for the Anglo-Muslim community. Uh, and that number 10 years ago looked at about looked at being about 100,000 in the UK, which means one in 600 British people is a convert to Islam. But anecdotal evidence from a lot of the mosques I talked to suggests that the number has really surged since then. Mm -hmm. So when last year's, well, 2021's census figures are finally crunched and released, then we will see something that no doubt the tabloid headlines will be screaming about as the, the British migrate away from Christianity and into Islam. It's not really a mass movement. It's a kind of gentle pilgrimage of individualists. But uh, it is becoming demographically significant. It's not that unusual to meet uh, converts to Islam, particularly in Western Europe. When I'm in London and I go to Friday prayers in Regent's Mosque, I, I get to acknowledge how many Muslims are actually there. If oh, I yes. squint, I'm probably back in Saudi. Uh, how does the, I want to say lawmakers or the British government, are they comfortable with the growing number of Muslims in the UK? Is there a mutual respect with one another? Well, it's acknowledged that given the demographic collapse of Western Europe, the average British woman now has just over 1.5 babies uh, and the aging of the population, which has very uh, threatening economic consequences as a smaller population base of young working people supports an increasing number of retired people, that immigration and therefore religious and ethnic diversity is inescapable if the country is to survive economically. And that was the case that Angela Merkel made seven years ago when she let in a million just about Syrian refugees and asylum seekers, that the country can't survive. The German economic miracle depends now on migrant labor. So they don't really have a choice. They will posture about <clears throat> boat people arriving and economic migrants and wicked Albanians and people being smuggled across the channel. Uh, maybe a thousand a day are arriving by that route. But as climate change intensifies in the Muslim world and sub-Saharan Africa, as political instability in some country continues to propel waves of, of migrants and refugees, everybody knows that this is the future. So in London now, uh, one in seven people is a Muslim. A third of London businesses are Muslim-owned. The mayor of London is a mosque-going Muslim. And even in Scotland, where the demography is a little more homogenized, uh, the first minister of Scotland, Hamza Yusuf, is also a mosque-going Muslim. So most people take it in their stride. I think that the English temperament is not quite as jumpily anxious about this as, say, the French or some of the Nordic countries. And they recognize that during the COVID pandemic, for instance, the first three National Health Service doctors who died of COVID because they were at the front line in the hospitals, they were all Muslims. That without the Muslim demography, the health service wouldn't have coped with COVID. Uh, so that is generally recognized. There's more intermarriage, there's more intermingling of people and religions at the workplace. And most people are pretty cool with the Muslim presence. Of course, the xenophobes 
on both sides, you know, there's Muslims who have a panicky and xenophobic attitude to the, the great Satan and to the West. But those fringes tend to be still on the fringe, I would say. The far-right politics, which you see in France, some other European countries, hasn't really gained a major foothold in the United Kingdom. I think there's historical reasons for that, but also a kind of English Anglo-Saxon pragmatism that recognizes that this is something that is an inescapable change. That in the 19th century, the white man was going out and settling everybody else's country. And now the, the uh, wheel has turned and it's time for those people to come to England. And this is certain poetic justice, except that the Westerners were doing it through violence and conquest in the 19th century, whereas these people are coming to the UK peacefully. Um, that's the key difference. But surges, movements, mass migration of populations are just a constant of world history. And everybody recognizes that it, it can't be stopped and shouldn't be stopped. Mm -hmm. I follow sports. I'm a football fan and I can't help but notice it. Just how Italy still has a, a racial problem oh, yes. against against the, uh, the, the, the African-American or the black man uh, playing football in their country. Denmark seems to always, you know, find itself in the news for the wrong reasons when it comes to respecting the religion of Islam. In the UK, it's not the case. Any particular reason why Denmark and other Nordic countries have this complexity? I think it's complex. It may have something to do with the unhappy legacy of certain Aryan far-right fascistoid movements that were very powerful there, a kind of quizzling phenomenon uh, in the 1930s, the unacknowledged prevalence of collaboration during the Nazi occupation, the failure of <coughs> denazification, and perhaps ironically the fact that those countries generally didn't have uh, a Muslim empire. The British, even in the heyday of Victorian triumphalism, they were kind of interested in India. We started to eat Indian food. Queen Victoria had Indian servants. Indian words started to come into the English language. We all started to live in bungalows. And even though there was the assumption of the white man's burden, the white man's superiority still, there was a sense that, an awareness, that the majority of the Queen's subjects were actually Muslims, not Christian. Whereas the Danish, the, the Norwegians, and other people simply don't have that stratum in their history. That may be one reason for it. Uh, it may also be the case that the Muslim migrants that they have accommodated have come from rather more desperate asylum-seeking dissident demographies rather than the mass migration of uh, vitally needed workers who came to, say, the UK in the 1950s to replenish the uh, ranks of factory workers because so many had died in the war. Mm. Um, so the economic indispensability of the Muslim presence has never been quite so strong an argument in places like Sweden and Denmark. That makes sense. And, and thus weren't influenced by having Muslims there on the ground at the rate that they did in the UK. No, it's much newer in the Nordic countries. Mm. Uh, and they have also been a little bit on the edge of the European experience. They don't have a deep experience of migration, even from other European countries. They have produced emigrants. You know, half the population of Minnesota is <laughs> Icelandic and, and, and Norwegian, uh, but they didn't really receive large overseas demographies. And you can see that in the Stockholm phone book, for instance, the Swedish people have recognizably Swedish names, yes. whereas the London phone book uh, has always had a lot of Italians and Portuguese and Russians and Paris is the same. So it's a kind of shock for them to realize that at last they're catching up with the rest of the world and becoming diverse. Makes sense.
I watched a few clips of you on YouTube yesterday and uh, the word, the green pill came up a few times. Okay. Would you be able to walk me through it, please? Well, it's my rather elderly attempt to be with it and to speak to a kind of popular culture. Um, it's again to do with the, the mystery and the profound transformation that people find when they take the plunge and come into Islam or whether they experience what we call re-entry. In other words, they've been taking a siesta, not being very religious for a while, and then waking up to these important questions and coming back into Islam. Uh, it's a green pill, partly because you know, the Cambridge Mosque, which I support, is an eco-mosque and has a lot of sustainability features, uh, reflecting the Qur'an's concern for the sanctity, uh, the inviolability of the natural world and the environment. Uh, but also the sense that uh, if the kind of matrix cliche is that there are different paradigms through which we see the world, uh, which may some of them be unreal or illusory, which is not a trope that they invented, but goes right back to Plato and the cave and the basic philosophical questions about to what extent can we trust the evidence of our senses and the consequence of our inevitably limited reason? How real is what we take to be the environment around us? That religion also is very uh, comfortable with that space uh, and seeks to uh, waken us to what is behind phenomena. The senses perceive just the surface of things. Human beings from Paleolithic times, as far as we can tell, have discerned, particularly in the forms of virgin nature and the cycles of the season, the movements of sun and moon, that astronomical phenomena, something that bespeaks greater depth. In other words, the presence of the sacred. And this has always been an integral part of human nature. There's never really been a secular culture, except this strange thing that seems to have overcome us in the West in the last 20 or 30 years, whose long-term sustainability we simply don't know. And the human brain does seem to have developed in order to thrive in the context of seeing the magical, the mysterious, the religious, the numinous, the aesthetic, and human culture really begins with that, from the Epic of Gilgamesh to grave goods in the upper uh, Neolithic period. We've always been homo religiosus is part of human normality, despite the obvious immense diversity of, of religious forms. So the green pill in this kind of little comparison that I'm attempting is to step out of the illusion that the modern sort of neoliberal capitalist paradigm uh, uses in order to turn us into consumers of the surface of things with evident deleterious effects on our mental health, uh, let alone our spiritual health, and to help us once again to connect with that natural human capacity to intuit and even to perceive the sacrality of things. And this I take to be a particularly key aspect of the Qur'anic message. Some scriptures refer to nature more than others, the Qur'an perhaps more than most. Uh, and it's part of its argument. It's an argument from design asking the hard-hearted pagan Arabs to look around at the phenomena of the world, the amazingness of the Arabian desert, the beauty of the desert once the rain falls, the uh, synchronicity of the heavens, uh, and to observe that this kind of order and this kind of beauty 
is unlikely to be self-generated, but bespeaks some ultimate prior cause, uh, whose concern is with order, with compassion, with beauty, with majesty, and with us poor little worms of, of human beings who are somehow at the center of this great operatic drama that is, that is the cosmos. So uh, to take the green pill is to uh, wake up and to see behind the surface of things, to see the divine source and reality of things, and to see the joy that things have in their being in God. Everything in the heavens and the earth is what God is doing at a particular moment. Sometimes the divine gentleness is evident. Sometimes the divine rigor is evident. Yesterday at the dawn prayer in Medina, there was an almighty thunderstorm. Uh, the heavens were cracking open. Uh, the lightning made the moss lights flicker. It was <laughs> titanic. Um, you know how the desert storms are there, like, yes, yeah. like the crack of doom. Mm. Uh, and one remembers the Quranic verse, that the thunder hymns his praise. And that to me is necessary for our humanity, that we cannot exist uh, in what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the felt flatness of modernity, our pain at discovering that there's nothing to discover the fact that young people who crave initiation to be taken off by the elders of the tribe into the wilderness and violently initiated into the hunt, the gods, the sacred place, that that initiation which young men in particular really need in order to become men is no longer available. And instead, there's just more treats and more consumer goods and more of the same, with the result that we have what Jung and others have called the poor eternus, the eternal boy. We never really grow up nowadays. There's a lack of seriousness in our culture. Everything is playful and ironic and uh, uh, often obscene. So it's a form of maturation, which has a specifically Islamic form because of Islam's particular focus on re-engagement with a natural world, which is almost animated, where everything is praising God and humanity has its due role as another element in creation that is to praise God. Uh, but it's also, I think, more universally a reconnection with what is primordially human, with what Muslims and the religion calls fitra. The religion is the religion of fitra, which means something like the primordial natural disposition, what it is to be fully and richly and authentically someone who inhabits the, the possibilities of our enfleshed forms in this miraculous cosmos and to see everything in terms of its meaning its ma'ana rather than just its perceived form, its hiss. So yeah, it's it's opening one's eye, the eye of the heart, the spiritual eye, and thereby rejoining human normalcy. It's not an unusual thing historically, it's, it's what we're for. If you can go back to the years leading up to you converting to Islam, can you walk us through what it was that pulled you into the religion and made you think, yes, this is something that I want to do right now? Uh, conversion is an ongoing process. It's a metanoia. It's a turning tauba in the Arabic language. It's like the Greek teshuvah in Hebrew. It's turning yourself around physically in terms of adopting a new and hopefully better way of engaging with your body, with, with the world, with the senses, but also a spiritual turning from the periphery to the center. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, converts come in all shapes and sizes. 
But I think what generally unites the people that I work with is what appealed to me, which was a sense that the ancestral Christianity of my family was dying away for a variety of complex historical and um, um, sometimes biblical critical reasons. Um, looking at my grandparents' generation, uh, chapel goers, they didn't drink. This was the age of uh, temperance Christianity. My grandfather marched up to the Bible in the chapel in Norwich at the age of 14, put his hand on the Bible and swore off strong drink for life as his father had done. And that was part of our kind of puritanical Christian chapel world, which was a world which had very great sort of moral significance and was part of the pushback against some of the worst horrors of the Industrial Revolution and Dickensian England. Um, it was a very moral and moralizing type of religion. In my case, looking at the doctrines as opposed to the morality, I found uh, to my sort of teenage excitement, because many teenagers like to rebel, that I couldn't subscribe to any of the articles of the Church of England or of the Calvinistic churches. Uh, and as naughty little boys, we used to tease the school chaplain with questions. How can God be three and one at the same time? Is there anything that could be three and one at the same time? And he would go to the blackboard and try and explain what Augustine thought of the perichoretic union of the persons of the Trinity, and we didn't buy it. It looked like a kind of uh, attempt to square a circle. And then we naughty little boys said, how could Jesus be man and God at the same time? In other words, a single entity is infinite and finite simultaneously. How does that work, Mr. Booth? That was the name of our <laughs> poor uh, school chaplain who is used to being endlessly tormented with sort of rude, semi-blasphemous questions from cheeky adolescents. Uh, and he'd go back to the board and try to explain, well, you can have a being that's infinite and finite at the same time. And how can this human God die for three days at Easter time? What is it for God to die and then to come back again and who revives him? So, and it turned out that he was defending something technically that he wasn't fully giving his heartfelt assent to. And I found this increasingly, that people were going to the churches out of a sense of uh, tradition, sometimes social compliance. Uh, but uh, when they came to those bits in the creed or in the hymns, which dealt with those very difficult paradoxes, they couldn't really deal with a form of religion that seriously expected everything in your life to be based on paradoxes, what we saw as paradoxes. So I became, as many in the 70s did, a kind of seeker exploring Eastern spiritualities, looking into different religions, spending time as an undergraduate in Cambridge, drinking lots of black coffee with like-minded, earnest friends, uh, into the small hours talking about the Vedas, talking about Buddhism, talking about Taoism, talking about secular philosophies. Marxism was still a thing back then, very much so. Um, uh, what I never knew about or had any notion of being attracted to turned out to be the ticking of all of the boxes about the nature of Christ and God and creation and sin and the fall that my Christianity had never ticked for me. 
that we're all collectively guilty for the sin of Adam, and therefore God himself has to suffer because we can't do enough to extricate ourselves from all of that sort of standard church talk, which we had mocked as teenagers. It was a very secular school, very few kids, even though we had big church services at Westminster Abbey with the organ and the processions and every day, but the reality was, was not in it. Um, except apart from a, a righteous remnant, I suppose, who did purport to accept these paradoxes. But I was never somebody who was looking to reinvent myself um, to do a kind of Lawrence of Arabia or to inhabit somebody else's um, identity. Because I, I think if you are going to take the very grave and immense step of changing your religious worldview, which affects the deepest aspect of what you are, you have to be sure that you are building on what you already are rather than pretending that you can get rid of it and reinventing yourself as a Buddhist monk or something, as some people claim successfully to be able to do. But I was never interested in no longer being my kind of middle-class, mediocre, middle-of-the-road, middle-England, British self. I didn't particularly want to be part of somebody else's story. And I found Islam to be, in a strange kind of way, very universal. And one does find that with a lot of converts, that in an odd way, German converts become more German, French converts become more French, and that's not just a reaction against the perceived exoticism of mosque culture, that they jump back into their own identity. That can happen, but it's usually not that. That it brings out something that is indigenous, that uh, is somehow purified. Uh, it's, it's a very remarkable thing when you see people who are from very conservative English backgrounds. I mean, I know somebody who is in the higher ranks of the aristocracy who sits in the House of Lords and is the most stereotypical kind of P.G. Wodehouse English type you could imagine. You'd hardly think that people like that survived the 1930s, but there he is in his tweed and his, he goes hunting <coughs> and this, the English thing. He has a big mansion that his family have been in for 400 years. But he's really English, and yet he prays five times a day and he does Ramadan. And that, I think, is often not understood in the West. They see Islam as, for the Arabs, the Pakistanis, whatever, it's, it's yeah. perceived as being for the ethnic other, which adds a further layer of alienation because uh, racial sensitivity is still a real thing in the West, despite manful, sometimes successful efforts to push back against it. But uh, the West does see people on the basis of ethnicity before it sees people on the basis of religion. So if you can transcend that and show Islam as universal religion, the, the greatness of the purity of Abrahamic monotheism that one finds in the Quran as being something that speaks to one's Englishness or Americanness or Japanese-ness. Uh, and Islam historically has adapted enormously to various cultures, you know, mosque in Senegal looks completely unlike a mosque in Sumatra, for instance. That's part of the um, the, the Quran's celebration of human colors. Uh, the difference of colors is seen by the Quran as a sign of God. It's something that, that we welcome and Islamic forms and arts uh, and oral culture and poetry has always uh, reflected that and respected it. So I think that's that was probably the major obstacle I had to overcome. The sort of Disney idea of the Arab world, the Muslim world as being a kind of 
is it Agrabah, the city in Disney's, Aladdin, yeah. yeah, Aladdin, that it's pointy minarets and pointy shoes yeah. and uh, scary men in turbans and oppressed women. And, uh, if you can see, that's a kind of horrible, stereotypic, sub-racist stereotype about a certain aspect of Arabian Nights culture that once had a reality. And you see the universalism of the religion and how it can, in this very remarkable way, help you to inhabit your indigenous identity more fully. I think that's the thing that's least understood about Islam in the West. Um, and it's often the converts who demonstrate its universality. And this has been a theme in European Muslim thought. Ivan Agueli was from Sweden, but wrote mostly in French right at the beginning of the 20th century regarded as the founder of European Muslim theology and thought, reflected in a very interesting way on the intensification of the particular by the embrace of the Islamic universal. There's some very remarkable essays about that, which I think if it were better understood, would help Muslims to integrate, would help people to see Muslims as people who can integrate and perhaps even enrich local narratives rather than challenge or, or deconstruct them yeah. or whatever the, the xenophobic or anxious identity politics of the far right might might wish to trade on. Um, does it irk you, does it bother you that we live in a world now where there's so much confusion amongst the youth in wanting to be something different to how God created them? I think that what religion will want to look at most carefully is the enormous human pain and suffering that is propelling people into entertaining ideas about themselves that might be objectively absurd. Uh, the Otherkin movement, which is gathering traction now in the UK, but in America is very well established, is people uh, being convinced and proclaiming to the world they are in fact elves. So they have cosmetic surgery, they have their ears made pointed, they have their eyes yellowed, and you can see them now, but it's, it's more an American than a UK thing because all good things come from the West. Uh, uh, but they would say self-identification is the essence of authenticity. We will not accept the imposition of somebody else's idea of who we are. If I believe I'm a badger or a stoat or a Martian, that is truly who I am. And you are harming and oppressing me if you don't allow me to inhabit my own chosen identity. That's the narrative. And uh, this is, if you like, the end point of the subjectivizing of human identities unleashed by the Enlightenment. 250 years ago, you know, Diderot, Condorcet, and so forth, uh, Kant to some extent, were saying, we need to throw off the false consciousness imposed on us by religion. Christianity comes from churchmen, it comes from Jesus of Nazareth 2000 years ago. If we comply to that, we're not being true to ourselves and we are living in a state of inauthenticity. And much of modernity is a quest for the authentic and a search for uh, a kind of disalienated sense of self. Uh, and so what the Enlightenment said was, well, now it's not religion or God, but it's man that is the measure of all things. And this became humanism whatever conduces to human beings teleological expansion into that which they fully feel called to be is uh, the expansion and the enrichment of their identity and nobody has the right to obstruct that unless they're breaking the law if you say i believe in mass murder well you're not allowed that and that's the basis of the 
sort of social contract <coughs> on which sort of Rawlsian liberalism depends. But where does that stop? What if you have a, a culture that is so given to the construction of dreams through social media, Netflix and, and the rest, uh, that people prefer to inhabit some kind of metaverse or alternative reality and become convinced that indeed they are elves, indeed they are UFOs, indeed they are badgers or rabbits. Um, is that also encompassed by the humanistic vision? And that the answer to that generally is yes, particularly from the postmodernist to reject all categories. There is no gender, there is no nation, there is no identity of any kind. There is only the sense of intensity lived and experienced and enjoyed by the self. Now, uh, inevitably, one of the consequences of this uh, proliferation of choices is that life becomes very stressful. There was a time when everybody's choices were very circumscribed, when you didn't even get to pick your marriage partner, for instance. You didn't get to pick your career. Your father was a shoemaker. You could be sure that your grandchildren were shoemakers and you spoke a particular dialect and you lived in a particular area. My ancestors, if you look at their family tree, for 150 years, they lived in the same street. <laughs> and then in about 1750, they moved to another house in the street <laughs> in Norwich. 50 years later, they moved back to the original house. <laughs> that was their life. They lived in this small English town and they had a certain fulfillment because they knew we make shoes, we have a clothes shop, we sell hats, we married the girl next door. And there was a certain sense in which people's aspirations, which were humble, could actually be fulfilled and they could die happy. Nowadays, people are told their aspirations are infinite and they can be whatever they want. Choose a gender, choose a nationality, choose uh, whatever it might be, choose a species. Um, and that, that proliferation of choices is experienced as a form of human enrichment and liberation. But of course, young people going through hormonal shifts in their teens, looking at the confusion of the world, already depressed by climate change and a range of other existential threats, uh, are overwhelmed by the range of choices. They no longer have any stable coordinates. There are no certainties any longer. They might grow up thinking, I'm a girl, but nobody can any longer tell them what that means yeah. because you can't define gender any longer because it oppresses people who are non-conformist or whatever it might be. So young people are being liberated into a space whose indefinite contours and whose infinity of options is actually not liberating but profoundly oppressive. And so they exist under this huge burden of the superfluity of choices, which is why we have this mental health pandemic at the moment. Um, World Health Organization released a report recently talking about the already acknowledged crisis, particularly in the what they call the core Anglosphere, that's the British and our former white possessions, including the United States, where in the UK at the moment, of the, the 18 to the 24 uh, age band, 44% of young people self-report psychological difficulties that are regarded as stressing or critical. 44. And, yeah, and I, I teach at a university, I see this all the time. Students who are just, have very little resilience. They can't cope with this world of endless possibilities and no fixed coordinates. As a species, we're not designed for that. We have certain <coughs> limitations to how we can reinvent ourselves. 
which are pretty finite. So, yep, we have all kinds of very advanced social pathologies at the moment, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world. Interestingly, the same report, which I was reading just yesterday, said that the country with the lowest rate of anxiety and depression issues is Venezuela. <laughs> Uh, there's something about the kind of Mediterranean, salsa, relaxed world that's actually very healthy and a society which in many ways still recognises what is a man, what is a woman, they have beauty contests, it's still kind of, there are coordinates that people can live within. Some of the Central African countries also do very well. Democratic Republic of Congo, it seems from the statistics, has a far better rate of mental health well-being than the Anglo-Saxon world. So this is perhaps the end point of the Enlightenment project, to liberate us from the alienations of religion by enabling us to be truly ourselves, but without any philosophical or even neurological definition of what that self might be. So everything depends on the self. Who am I? I assert myself, I discover myself, I express myself, but nothing is telling me what I am, what is the self. It's ironic, actually, because you'd think that a country that has everything, a first world country, would be able to address issues pertaining to, to mental health. You look at Japan and their suicide mm -hmm. problem there, and it's one of the most advanced countries in the world. You touch on Venezuela and Congo as being the furthest away from uh, having mm -hmm. mental health issues. Does it bring truth to the words, less is in fact more? That seems to be the conclusion of the UN report. It's not primarily an attempt to diagnose the condition, where does this come from? They do talk a bit about uh, access to uh, internet broadband pos uh, positively correlating with mental illness. That does seem to be fairly consistent, particularly people who are online for more than about five or six hours a day. The thing itself is not damaging, but if it becomes the center of your life, it seems that it does affect the brain's normal functioning. Uh, and there are very extreme forms of that, for instance, pornography addiction, which is known to permanently damage the brain with dopamine loops. And that's particularly corrosive because the brain is really not designed for endless pulses of desire and extreme imagery. We're not designed for that at all. We're designed to be <laughs> hunter-gatherers in yep. the African plains, throwing a spear at a mammoth every few days and then sitting around kind of sleeping or telling stories. That's human normality. And in our technologically enabled world, our cyber world, we've grown so far from that that you know, we're just not inhabiting a proper habitat for human happiness. So, yeah, internet use has something to do with it. There's also interesting uh, speculation about uh, soft plastic pollutions that uh, societies where there is a lot of soft plastic use and the presence of certain microparticles and microplastics in the water supply and the food chain does seem to be associated with certain rising sort of forms of uh, mental distress. But it's not really well understood because it, it's really recent. Even 30 years ago in England, uh, the pattern was reversed. Most depression and anxiety was amongst the over 65s and young people were pretty carefree. My generation was pretty happy in the 60s and 70s. It was kind of fun, and we were not worried too much about, about things. And we certainly never thought about having a mobile phone or online oceans of extreme images or the stuff young people uh, are tempted by today. It was more, a more innocent world. Uh, but now it's the young who are suffering. I mean, I'm an educator, I teach at a university, I see students in tears, I see them with essays that don't make any sense. I see 
you know, a real lack of resilience amongst young people. Less in continental Europe, it seems. Um, interestingly, of the Arab countries, the one that scores best is actually Tunisia. You might want to reflect mm. on why that is, that they have pretty good mental health outcomes. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we, we are struggling at my university to figure out how we adjust the examination system, how we deal with students that find it very difficult to be physically present in a lecture room, um, students who never appear at all and we don't know where they are. And you have to send the porter of their college to talk to them and they appear in their pajamas and nobody's seen them for, for weeks. Uh, this is increasingly common. Even 25 years ago when I started, uh, my academic uh, trajectory, we hardly ever saw that, but now it's become almost the norm. Sure, so the we, we don't is, know where it's going. Yeah, it's, sorry, I um, just wanted to add to that. Uh, the, the phone is is a weapon, really, mm -hmm. uh, being so dependent on it. Yesterday I had some friends over for Sahur, about five or six of us. And at one point, me included, I noticed that we were all on our phone. I put yeah. it down and threw a topic out there because it's depressing that we're six of us together and you know we're, we haven't been together in the last month. How are we not talking to one another? Yeah, yeah and, and part of the beauty of the traditional Muslim lifestyle is the idea of the majlis, the physical proximity of people. I think sitting on the floor or on low cushions is actually a very good way of making people feel less separate. If we're sitting like this with a table and chairs, there's a certain gulf that separates us. But the traditional, I mean, when I was living in Saudi Arabia, I used to attend the classes of my really ancient sheikh in Mecca. And it was like a scene out of the Middle Ages. And he would be sitting, he used to smoke a shisha with asher, with spices and so forth. A uh, really old guy. And sometimes you'd wonder if he was still alive. He would kind of sit there during the class. And you, then you saw the bubbles in the shisha and you relaxed. <laughs> Uh, and there were these sort of young students around him reading these texts and it was, he was a kind of miracle of erudition. I've never seen such rapid recall. He was in his 90s, but had this incredible oceanic, like a hard drive in his head. He knew everything. And if there was a mistake in our text, a misprint, he'd kind of come to life and say, Lap. and we would correct the printed text because he, his memorized text was the authentic one. Very impressive, very inspiring. But there was something very human about it because we were sitting on the floor, somebody would bring in tea. There was a kind of, you know, the Arab thing is very physical. You're hugging people, you're touching them. Yeah. You put your hand on their knee. Kissing them. You, you walk in public, you know, when I was- Holding hands. Yeah, I mean, this was something I found difficult when I was in Egypt because some of my <laughs> teachers there, we would walk through Khan al-Khalili and the tourist areas and the Sheikh would be holding my hand and all the tourists are kind of looking at this. What's going on there? <laughs> but it, 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 you know, the, the, at its best, the Arab culture is very physical and healthy. And uh, you know, as a species, we do need to have physical contact with each other. And I was talking to a, an, in, in England, we have a loneliness epidemic now. We even have a minister of loneliness in the UK yeah, because it's I such a. Yeah. Um, so I talked to somebody who does the hair of old people, and she was saying, this is the only time they ever get touched. And you can feel when you put your hands on their heads, this is kind of the best thing that's happened to them for months. Somebody is touching me. It's generally, the families are not looking after the old and care homes, so-called concentration camps for people who are no longer of interest to a kind of youth-obsessed society. It can be quite horrifying. Um, but they, nobody touches them. Uh, they just sit staring at daytime TV all day 
and porridge spooned into their mouths three times a day and it's uh, as lifespans stretch ever on in the west into the 90s and beyond but the physical health doesn't really catch up with that this is what people in our enlightened civilization increasingly have to look forward to yeah um at my my grandmother's care home i asked the lady who was in charge of this place how many people in this care home where there were about 30 people received visitors at christmas and she said just you and somebody else wow otherwise they're just completely abandoned even when people's families are living nearby so this is individualism uh, which results in an enormous amount of human suffering so i think that really instead of religions moralizing it tends not to achieve much and just makes people angry and defensive to to look with compassion at the victims of the modern system the asylum seekers drowning the enormous disparities of rich and poor uh, the abandonment of the elderly and also to feel sorry for the young people who are so confused about their identity that they might go through extreme surgical procedures which they might regret and that whole thing which even secular thinkers in the west are struggling with at the moment so in, instead of turning it into a kind of sermon issue just to try and understand the pain that young people go through why are they in tears why are they so frail why are they self-harming particularly the girls because generally this is a phenomenon that seems to affect young women more than young men young men don't cut themselves the young women do um so yep it's um, and it makes the discussion quite interesting you know in this part of the world where uh, many people think the way of modernization is the emulation of a more materially successful civilization and that has been part of the kind of arab crisis since the 19th century napoleon's invasion of egypt the apparent mastery of technique by the europeans <coughs> and mohammed abdul rashid rida kawakabi and others hoda sharawi <coughs> uh, initiated the discussion about how we take the best of the west and leave the stuff that is not in accordance with our traditions generally that wasn't theorized out with much sophistication it was more kind of crisis driven we need railways we need modern weapons and this is kind of how the ottomans did it <coughs> in the long term that didn't really yield a very unified kind of culture you had people who were torn between two different worlds speaking different languages even in different contexts which is not a good basis for sort of national development <coughs> the chinese never did that the japanese never did that the koreans never did that what they assimilated from the west they processed and they always did everything in their own language one of the explanations for the economic miracle of korea is the fact that they emphasized their own language and their own literature in every level of higher education <coughs> whereas in a place like algeria you find if you study medicine you have to study it in french, french. and <coughs> that is a major factor in the uh, economic retardation of those cultures that everybody is kind of living in a binary existence so uh that seemed inevitable when the triumph of the west was so overwhelming and the west was physically administering most of the muslim world now when the anglosphere in particular seems to be hurting so much and the triumphalism has died away uh it becomes a more ambiguous and i think more interesting discussion for muslim countries because we can see that the western model 
if it's leading to 44% of young people with diagnosed mental health issues, that's not necessarily what we want for our own young people. Let's be a little bit more selective, not in a xenophobic way, but learn from the mistakes of others rather than in the kind of Atatürk style, admiringly convert to whatever is foreign and abandon and even persecute what's indigenous. So I think the discourse now is going to be a little bit more interesting and a little bit less one-sided as a result of this evident crisis of, of Western civilization. We've seen modernity take over the Gulf countries, specifically in the Middle East. Um, you know, I'm looking at countries like the UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and what's happening here as we gear up to Vision 2030. The question is, what kind of challenges, let's say, does modernity pose on Islamic societies and culture? Well, Islamic societies are not a single kind of thing. This is a common Western stereotype that every Muslim has a camel and four wives and lives in the desert. And most Muslims in the world live east of Karachi. The biggest Muslim country is Indonesia. Um, there's more Islamic universities in Indonesia than in all the Arab countries put together. So Islam is a very diverse thing. And how Islam is experiencing modernity in the context of the Far East, tiger economies, Malaysia and so forth is really different to the story here. Um, how Turkey has negotiated it, how sub-Saharan African Muslim communities have negotiated, how the Muslims in the former Soviet Union, the Uzbeks and so forth, it's, it's a range of different responses. But still, it's uh, a little bit like that distressing scene in Dances with Wolves, Dances with if you Wolves. remember the Kevin Costner yes. movie, classic, where um, the native people with their simple, harmonious way of dealing with the sacred and with the animals finally realize that the white man is going to be everywhere and is going to take everything and that their own ways are doomed. And they just look to a future that is no longer a future. Um, some of them hold on, but of course the situation of Native Americans who used to have the continent and are now reduced to often alcohol-sodden reservations, thinking about their glorious, in many cases, really glorious past, yeah. while the white man is going to the chain store and uh, doing his oblivious materialistic things. Uh, it's very tragic. Uh, the native aboriginals in Australia, the Maori people in uh, New Zealand, is that the fate of the Muslim world? It doesn't look like that because the Muslims have a form of religion that is universal and that is extraordinarily resilient. Who would have thought in the 1950s when Muslim migration to Britain started that in 2023 there would be five mosques in Cambridge and they're so full for Salat al-Tarawih prayers that people have to pray outside in the rain, which is our reality. Islam is really resilient. Given a chance, it bounces back. The people are converting to Islam despite the prejudices and sometimes the prejudices pique their interest. What is this evil religion where you cut off everybody's hands and you beat your wife? And I need to read about this. And sometimes when they read you know, genuine academic studies of Islam, they kind of think, it's the opposite of what everybody is saying. And ironically, some of the Islamophobes become Muslim. And we've seen that in some of the far-right circles in Europe, where some of the leading far-right politicians have actually annoyed and amazed the sociologists by converting to the religion of the despised, unchosen, underclass. Um, in the Middle East, 
is it the dancing with wolves scenario the white man has the technology and the iron horse and our ways are just destined to vanish like the iroquois and the sioux indians hasn't really worked that way um because the again the the extraordinary resilience of the monotheistic principle itself and in many ways the capacity of islam to be decentered i think has helped uh in the soviet union where there was a deliberate campaign to destroy religion museums of atheism in every city and most of the imams were shipped off to the gulags and never returned and almost all the mosques were destroyed i was there during the 80s during the communist period on karl marx's birthday i went to the burial place of imam al-bukhari famous hadith scholar of course, of course. <laughs> it wasn't on the tourist track but somehow i managed to find my way there little village um, not far from samarkand and i got talking to a local person who looked just like a typical soviet and then turned out yeah you know this is ramadan we're fasting and when from the naqshbandi tariqah we keep our traditions going and we pray in our houses but of course we're good party members and we toe the line so on the surface things seem to be completely compliant with this western totalitarian anti-islamic ideology and then communism vanishes nobody's a communist now in uzbekistan after 80 years of intensive brainwashing from a very young age gone yeah it's a bad dream and the mosque is full again and they're rebuilding mosques and the hijab and it's all coming back so uh, i think that in the longer term one has the the not just the responsibility but the right to be optimistic and i see in the region so many thoughtful young people who don't just want a world of shopping mm-hmm. but want to have ideas and want to engage with world religions and thought and art and the deeper things um that was not so much the case i think 30 years ago but now i do see a kind of more reflective not post consumer but at least skeptical consumer attitude um not living by bread bread alone uh so i'm cautiously optimistic about the region not just because the, of the depth of their islamic identity which is just there but trying to figure out how to express itself yeah. in the context of this weird late capitalistic kind of bacchanalia of consumer stuff um but is you know, innate in human nature we are religious beings we've always sought for truth we sought for beauty we want to what is the basis for morality and sooner or later i think that will break surface so i, I don't sermonize too much about shopping malls in dubai and these yeah. this is just something that people are working through um and countries have the right to develop themselves and in the longer term i think that a good symbiosis will be found quite possibly working with muslims in the west mm. quite often uh, we run sort of retreats uh for you know young educated muslims in various sites in the west we find increasingly the people who come to them are young middle easterners who are not satisfied with the kind of state religious discourse they say in their own countries and they're really interested in the intellectual life that's happening amongst muslims in the west where there are some very significant thinkers now um there are some important american muslim theologians and poets and artists and universities and institutions and despite the crazy consequences of the radical freedom of enlightenment uh modernity 
the freedom also gives us the space to think and to try to be authentic in a way that in some highly regulated Muslim societies might appear to be more difficult. So whether you accept that this is the meaning of the hadith that predicts at the end of time the sun will rise from the West. <laughs> I don't think historically the West has really produced great spiritual movements. They've all come from the East. All the religions are from Asia, much to the confusion of some sort of rather nationalistically minded Americans. But <clears throat> yeah, the religions come from Asia. <clears throat> but uh, one does see the rapid growth of very interesting Muslim philosophical and academic writing in the major Western universities that is quite groundbreaking and has access to some of the world's great library collections and is trying not to be reactive or engage in crisis management about modernization, but to see how religion properly understood, classically understood, provides a set of solutions for those issues where modernity acknowledges that it's failing and that it's in a state of crisis. So it's quite an exciting time, really. And at our little institution in Cambridge, Cambridge Muslim College, we uh, have a remarkable team of thinkers and philosophers, theologians, jurists, Sharia experts who are kind of creating a critical mass in Cambridge. It's young, well, yeah? It's about a decade old? Oh, it, we've been going just for a, about 10 years. Ten years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my day job is teaching at the university, but I also kind of moonlight in my own college, Cambridge Muslim College, which is about uh, upgrading the skill set of imams and Muslim community leaders, uh, mostly for the UK context. Mm -hmm. And it's really very exciting to see the uh, sort of energetic brilliance of some of the young people and how once ways of engaging modernity with tradition are intelligently presented to them, they kind of relax and find their identity coalescing into a single identity. Uh, and then they go up like rockets academically. We've had people who've become professors in major universities after just a short time with us. So it's a kind of elite institution if we've only got 62 students because we pick the best, the most promising young people. Uh, but it's it's very exciting to see how you know, the classical texts of Islam, which come from such a different time and place, can still inspire and galvanize young people and enable them not just to be demolishers of modernity in a kind of stupid fundamentalist way, but healers of modernity. I see our role as being not combative, but therapeutic. Um, and I think that it's likely to be much more successful um, if we go along that track. Yeah. A question I ask my guests from time to time, but with you, I think it's very fitting. What's a subject that you feel should be taught in school that until today on an elementary level is not being taught? Uh, I think they definitely need more biology and particularly human biology mm -hmm. that will help them to make sense of the current confusions over gender identity. If you've been brought up on a farm, you won't have those confusions because you can see the bull is not like the cow. <laughs> gender is real. Who ever heard of a bullfight in Spain with a cow in the arena in the name of equality? It's just not, not how nature works. No. So once they realize that there are certain intrinsic differences that are not inequalities as such, they tend to relax a little bit and have a clearer sense of their identity. And also, what I think is particularly important, an awareness of their appurtenance to the natural world. We tend to be very discarnate, almost kind of cybernetic beings that don't engage much with the natural world, which is our normal habitat. So I think uh, stronger engagement with nature, an understanding of how nature works, an understanding of ecosystems. Uh, we need to train them to deal with what are likely to be the 
calamitous consequences of, of global heating and climate breakdown, which is already you know, it's raining all day yesterday in Saudi Arabia. How often does that happen? The desert is green, things are changing. Um, so we need climate change awareness, I would say. Uh, but also with an exposure to the world literatures that talk about the profundity and the spiritual uh, intensity that comes from uh, the contemplation of nature, uh, which sometimes the native religions of the West have underestimated. The natural world is from the fall, it's evil, it's the flesh, and we need to transcend that. I think that's very unhealthy. Uh, I think we need to be uh, schooled in an awareness of the creation that is praising God, that is redolent with the fragrance of transcendence, uh, that beckons us to a sustainable and harmonious interrelationship with itself, rather than our current role, which is basically as terminators of, of the biosphere. Uh, young people are passionately concerned about climate change. It's the number one issue for them certainly in, in the UK, and they need to be given school topics that enable them to think seriously about that and to realize that these crises are not the fault of the religions. They're the fault of secular, consumer, plastic-guzzling madness. So uh, it could be a very positive way of introducing ideas of social responsibility, universal ethics, humility, uh, the traditional religious values of frugality and uh, not over-consuming. I think that's a good way of re-ethicizing the curriculum, which has become very kind of career and empirical in its or orientation, and to bring it back towards something that's more ethical, that's more aesthetic, and latently also more spiritual. I want to know if there's a human behavior out there that bothers you. Uh, I don't like people being two-faced. I don't like it when they are false with themselves or with others, when they inhabit uh, different worlds as different personae. It's damaging to their own spiritual cohesion, and it's also uh, the source of so much mistrust in, in society. If you look at the seerah, the life story of the, the Holy Prophet, the founder of Islam, you'll find him endlessly forgiving <clears throat> even people who tried to assassinate him. He forgives, but he really didn't like treacherous, treasonable, yeah. two-faced behavior. He regarded that as being a fundamental abdication of one's responsibilities as an honorable human being. So, yeah, that is what I don't like. Mm -hmm. uh, people who break their promises, who make fat claims, including people who thunder from the pulpit about vices that they themselves are not immune to, or who talk about Muslim unity and brotherhood, and then they come out of the mosque and they're immediately criticizing each other or criticizing other yeah. Muslims. Uh, so I think that duplicitous two-faced quality, which we find in, in ourselves, uh, is particularly repulsive, and unfortunately does exist in Muslim societies as well as everywhere else. What makes you happy? It's probably the Aristotelian definition, which sounds terribly dull to modern ears. Happiness comes when good tasks are performed well, uh, which is to say that if you end a day's work and you believe in the usefulness of your work and you know that you have not uh, uh, behaved inappropriately, that you have honorably discharged your duties, you have a certain 
uh, sense of satisfaction at the end of the day, which is not really prideful, but which brings a certain happiness. Discharge your duties towards your spouse, towards your children, towards your parents, towards neighbors, towards society. That is likely to bring a happiness that's much more real than buying yourself a new car or going on some stupid spa holiday or pursuing this very illusory will-o'-the-wisp thing called happiness that modernity tries to turn into an income stream for, for corporations. Uh, so it means that it's accessible <coughs> to anybody and isn't really related to uh, income or even particularly to physical health. There's this thing called hedonic adaptation, which psychologists speak of, which means that people generally find a normal level of happiness irrespective of their external circumstances. I think it was a Harvard survey that looked at lottery winners and those who'd lost multiple limbs as a result of uh, a motor vehicle accident. And a year later, the levels of happiness were equivalent to what they had been before. People tend to find their own level. And unfortunately, the modern system tends to make false promises. Buy this new shampoo and you look as happy as this stupid person in the advertisement. It's often extremely primitive and, 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 and crude. Uh, but you know, it, it's perhaps the oldest cliche and the issue that the world religions agree on, which is that happiness comes from being, from following what Aristotle re would regard as the virtues, from being a decent and an honorable person who discharges his responsibilities, rather than somebody who kind of treats the world as a kind of buffet of pleasures. But that, that never works. Um, and again, this, this World Health Organization survey that I was talking about was very interesting in indicating that there's generally higher levels of mental well-being in poorer countries than in the Anglosphere. Yeah. yeah. Is there something that you started doing recently that you felt, if only I started doing this earlier? <laughs> I, lo I love this question. Well, probably I have many such experiences to look forward to. Um, There's always authors who one had heard of but never really engaged with. Um, I'm reading a book by somebody called Vasily Grossman at the moment, who is a mid-20th century Soviet Jewish writer who wrote about uh, the Second World War and about uh, what Stalin had done to, um, to the country, a kind of gulag author before Solzhenitsyn, but without the religious dimension that Solzhenitsyn brings in. And the prose is amazingly jagged, lucid, visceral, based on painful personal experience. And it's kind of opened up for me a world that I wish I'd inhabited 20 or 30 years ago uh, in order to understand some of the catastrophes that, that modernity has brought, particularly to Eastern Europe. So yeah, there's plenty of authors, there's plenty of Shakespeare plays that I've never bothered to, to attend. Um, operas, I don't think I've ever been to some of Mozart's earlier operas. Um, there's, there's so much in, in world culture. Um, Chinese poetry, I'm sure, would open up a new world to me. I've never read a Chinese poem. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a question of knowing where to graze in the enormously rich pasture of human culture and human experience. As a species, we're so productive and capable of such profundity and the miracle of the way in which a novelist who's telling you a story that basically it's a pack of lies, <laughs> none of it is true, 
can really emotionally move you and bring you into the inner emotional life of imaginary people is part of the profundity and the richness of, of human life, I think. Uh, and there's so much that I haven't read and haven't listened to, so many plays I haven't been to, UNESCO, I've no, most of them I don't know anything about. Um, I got into Thomas Mann recently, Death in Venice, which is not what I expected. So, yeah, particularly if you're an academic, you're always thinking, why didn't I read this before? That footnote could have been better. I missed this in this lecture. Somebody's reviewing my book badly because I didn't bother to read Professor X on whatever it was. Academic life is full of regrets and uh, might have beens. Is there an ayah or a hadith without, you know, being too sensitive or without me you know imposing any sensitivity but is there an ayah or a hadith that you find yourself going back to a lot and dissecting and reading and almost living your life by does one exist there's so much and one of the things that we do in ramadan of course is to listen to the whole quran in the tarawih prayers and it's by my stage of life it's become quite a familiar landscape and you savor the the, the syncopations, the sonorities, uh, the poetic qualities of the language, and you're always bumping into old friends and verses, and you realize, I didn't know where this was, it's in this surah. It's a very kind of cultural experience. Um, I think that the, the summation of Quranic religion is God calls you to the abode of peace. Mm. And that the heart has to be at ease. So, يَوْمَ لَا يَنْفَعُ مَالٌ وَلَا بَنُونَ إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَى اللَّهَ بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٌ Which is really talking about the end times, but is more universal than that. On that day, your family and your wealth you accumulated will be of no benefit to you. You just have to come to God with a sound heart. And this idea of the sound heart is very important in prophetic teaching. <coughs> that however, Smart we may be tricked out externally, however uh, impressive our bank balances might look, however many numbers or letters we have after our names. If we're not sound and healthy inside, in the heart, none of that will be a source of pleasure for us in, in either world. Uh, so yeah, and the lesson for that is that you look for sound hearts in humanity even across religious boundaries and in anybody who is a profoundly decent human being whose heart is pure of ostentation of hypocrisy of lying somebody who lives a decent human life that's a kind of sign of god and you can be inspired by the presence of god in that individual because despite the modern media culture which glorifies all the vices <laughs> almost every hollywood movie is an exploration of the excitement of all of the seven deadly sins now everything is upended that despite that uproar and confusion and the suffering that results uh, there's still so many good people with sound hearts including young people children Purity is still possible. It kind of wells up from the pure spring of the spirit in human hearts, and it's very difficult to pollute it completely. So my teachers, my Islamic teachers, when I was studying in the Middle East, always emphasized this. Always look for the good hearts. Don't judge by appearances. Don't judge by affiliations. Where you see a pure heart, a sound heart, qalbun salim, as the Quran says, there's the presence of God, and you should enjoy that light and be uplifted by what God has done for that person. Yeah. Fascinating. 
uh, one that that I like that whenever I hear it, I I always think that the world world could be a better place if more people read it and incorporated. Which is "Amal Dunyaka and Nakataisha Abedan," live for the world as if you will live forever mm-hmm. and live for the your 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 afterlife or or yeah the afterlife as if you're going to die tomorrow. Yes, indeed. Um, I wouldn't like to live in this world indefinitely. Yeah. Not just because of the looming climate change catastrophe, nanotechnologies, artificial intelligence, the various uh, existential threats that modernity is imposing on itself. But I think that uh, the human lifespan is what is appropriate given the capacities of the human mind. And the nightmare Elon Musk scenario of making us live longer and longer and longer, who knows what the mental health consequences of that would be. As we travel through life, we pick up traumas, shameful memories, missed opportunities, bereavements, regrets, and do we really want to outlive all of our friends and the world that we know and to be bewildered old people in a cybernetic world of plasma ghosts or whatever it is that they're, I don't don't think so. I think that the divine wisdom in giving us three score years and 10 or thereabouts is is exactly right and we should accept that wisdom. So, but who knows what the future will hold? but human nature doesn't change. Uh, and that's always the good news. And religion, apart for part of the strength of Islam for me, and this book that I recently brought out, Traveling Home, looks at that, is that it gives us this constancy, these reassuring firm coordinates. The book is primarily about Muslim situation in Europe, integration, a theology of Islam in Europe. It's not really a sociological study. Uh, that the the reason for the resilience of Islam under sometimes very difficult conditions and the reason why people continue to trade up to Islam is the miraculous intactness of its basic practices. That the prayer, yesterday in Medina with whatever it was, 1.9 million people from every country on earth. You know what it's like, that's kind of like the day of judgment, everyone is there. Literally. Yeah, but what unites them is that the form of the prayer is exactly the way the Holy Prophet prayed and Muslims have always prayed. And there's a tremendous sense of security and reassurance that comes from finding certain core things in one's life that have never changed and almost certainly never will change. That's the same with Ramadan, with the Hajj, with all of our basic institutions. So that gives me hope as well. And I see that why do people go to Medina? It's not even a religious obligation. (laughs) The Hajj is an obligation, Medina. They go there out of love, really. 1.9 million people putting up with crowds and airports and stuff and visas because of love for the man, for the Holy Prophet. This is his Darajat al-Aliyat al-Rafiyah that we pray for him after the call to prayer. Part of that is the extraordinary love that these people have for him and they're in tears because they're near the, the chosen one and God's beloved. So the power of love in our cynical age brings 1.9 million people from Indonesia or Cambridge or wherever just out of love and respect for the Holy Prophet. So humanity in its in its basic needs and vulnerabilities and capacities is, is still there, it's still intact. So that's why I'm optimistic. And the book, to some extent, uh, ends on an upbeat note about mm-hmm. the prospects for Islamic growth in the West. Thank you so much for giving me this book. I uh, I do look forward to reading it and then we'll share it with my family, I think, who, who, who will take 
similar interest in it. Um, <clears throat> before I let you go, my son yesterday, who's five and a half years old, asked me a question. I didn't know how to answer it. And um, then I said, I'm going to ask someone who might be <laughs> able to. He said, Baba, that if God knows everything, then how come he did not choose who goes to heaven and hell? Well, uh, here we come up with come up against some of the tougher aspects of our theology, which is to say that we do believe that the future is already there. We don't believe in a human-like God who's kind of sitting around to see what happens next and wondering what everybody's going to do and the Day of Judgment will be a surprise for God as well as for humanity. We believe in full monotheism, which means that the Supreme Being is outside time and knows all of time and therefore everything in time <clears throat> in the universe of manifestation everything that is not God is already there now we can't imagine what things would be like if there wasn't time because if all human experience is time bound and the clock is the kind of only constant thing in our lives but the divine is not subject to the clock the divine knows what will be everything is a single monadic unity of glory and majesty in the divine knowledge. So we kind of creep through life thinking that there is cause and effect and differentiation from the divine perspective. No, there's just the single blazing effusion of all of the divine names interacting, intersecting with each other to produce the, the majesty, the beauty, the terror, uh, the love, the wonder of creation. And that incorporates also the idea of otherworldly, recompense. It's not possible to believe that the omniscient supreme being is kind of wondering what's going to happen next. That's a kind of idea that Greek pagans might have liked, uh, but it's not our idea. So uh, it's quite a tough idea to think that that's already set, uh, but it should incentivize us to do what we can to show ourselves worthy of what God has decreed for us. Yeah. But inevitably, there's a paradox and a mystery because you're dealing here with the problem of free will, which is a problem for secular as well as religious philosophers. But what we don't believe is that God is somehow analogous to ourselves and wondering what's going to happen next. No, yeah. he, everything is an open book for him, yeah. past, present and future. It's been revealed. It's, it's been decreed. Decreed. It's what he does. He's the only one who does anything. We believe in full, uncompromising monotheism. SubhanAllah. Yeah. SubhanAllah. Thank you so much, uh, Sheikh, for what you do uh, for us. Thank you for coming to Saudi. Thank you for spreading the message in, in the UK and, 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 and beyond. Um, I'm very lucky to have had this hour with you. I look forward to reading this book and learning more about you. And um, my God, is this going to be an educational episode for many of my audience who aren't used to such content. So I thank you. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Academics are always happy to uh, release their thoughts and all of your listeners and viewers would be very welcome to visit us in Cambridge to see our new mosque, to meet our community, to see Cambridge Muslim College. Uh, it's become quite a hub for bridge building, constructive Islamic work in, in the kind of heartlands, Okhri Diyar uh, of the West. It's an interesting experiment. Yeah. And we'll ensure to put um, your website and all ways that people can, can reach out to the mosque and learn more about the religion. And um, and more about you. Thanks again, Sheikh. And I really do look forward to seeing you again soon, inshallah. Thank you. Maybe in Cambridge. Yes, I would love that very much so. Thank you.